Hello and welcome to the Psalmcast. I'm Pastor Ollie Berg. It's good for us to be here. Today we're talking about Psalm 80. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that begs and pleads for restoration. We're going to hear a refrain over and over again. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And we're going to encounter God as we encounter God through the lens of oppressed people. It's a beautiful psalm, and so why don't we just get right to it with a reading from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine, and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and have given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along it may pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Psalm 80 speaks directly to God. Of course, all the Psalms do. Prayer is just a means of speaking directly to God. But when you pray, you might not picture God in a specific location. Psalm 80 does. Asaph, the author of this Psalm, is speaking to God with a lot of specificity, which makes sense for him. You see, Asaph lived as a priestly musician. He offered music to God who sat enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had no throne like a chair, but it had a golden lid with these two statues of cherubim that God was said to sit upon, and this was called the mercy seat. And according to Chronicles, Asaph joined King David as they marched the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and Asaph spent his days in the temple. The Ark was a real-life reality for him. And he could point to the room where it sat, the Holy of Holies. 
Now, he probably never went into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest entered, and he only did that once a year. But regardless, Asaph is singing to a god he knows, a god that he can at least point to the general location to. The god who is enthroned on the cherubim, right over there. The god of the patriarchs. The god of Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. But if you're familiar with the Bible, you might realize that those names that Asaph used aren't the normal patriarchs that we think of when someone's listing the God of such and such. Usually we hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, well, you see, these were northern tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And that itself might be confusing, so let's get a little recap of some history here. We often think of the whole people of the Old Testament as Israel, the kingdom of David. But this was eventually split into two kingdoms. There was a kingdom called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, you see, the northern tribe was attacked multiple times, and eventually there was a terrible attack by the Assyrian Empire under the Emperor Sargon II. And Sargon took a lot of the northern kingdom into exile, which was obviously a traumatic experience that worked its way into the psyche of the entire people, not just the north, but also the south. And so Psalm 80 has the perspective of the northern kingdom of Israel, those people that were put under exile by the Assyrians. In fact, the Greek translators of the Septuagint, a translation of the Hebrew Bible that was popular in Jesus' time, they even labeled this psalm as about the Assyrians. So Psalm 80 is understandably a community lament, especially a community lament after exile. And the people speak to the shepherd of Israel and they ask him to hear their prayers. Specifically the prayers, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And this prayer is the basic thing that any exiled person wants. Restoration. Bring us back to how things used to be. Give us some justice. They've been conquered. They've been driven out. They want to go back to the position they used to have. Or at least they want to just go back to the land that they were in. And so the psalmist even has this personal touch of asking for God to shine God's face on the people. Because... This person believes that God's face can save them. And maybe, and this is just my little theory, it might also be that primal request to look the person you're fighting with in the eyes. Look at me in the eyes, God. Don't, don't look away. Even though you're mad, look at me. Let's talk this out. The second stanza appeals to that pathos of God, to that emotional component, by describing the plight the people are going through. They ask the question, how long? Which is a characteristic question of lament. But how long will God not answer their prayers? Right? We as individuals have probably asked this same question, but here it's the whole community. This whole community's prayers are seeming to go unanswered. And so the people describe to God how it's been for them, right? They're crying all the time. They cry so much, it's as if God had made bread out of tears and served up a pint of tears for them at the pub. It's tragic. It's also probably salty. But why are they crying? Well, as they summarize, they're the laughing stock of their neighbors and enemies because they've been conquered and decimated. 
So again, they ask God to restore them. But this time, they call God by a different name. They say, God of hosts, which basically means the God of armies. And I wonder if they're trying to appeal to God's macho side. You, strong leader of armies, you let us be devastated. You let us be fed by the bread of tears. You made us the laughingstock. Come on, big man, make this right. But then Asaph has a different turn. This psalm makes the people remind God of their history and relationship, specifically with regards to the Exodus. Just as they referred to God as the God of armies, now they refer to him and the Exodus as a gardening event. God took Israel, the vine from Egypt, and cast out the nations in order to plant it. So here, Asaph is summarizing essentially all of the books of Exodus and Joshua. God, the gardener, planted this vine and cleared the way for the vine to take root and spread like a healthy plant. So by appealing to this history, and the tender care that God had with the people Israel, Asaph's turn to this is becoming incredibly poignant. He's basically saying, if after you saved us, why are you breaking down the walls of this garden? Why are you letting this garden get plucked up, trampled by boars, burned up? Asaph is almost calling God to feel a little bit of shame at the maltreatment of God's people. In fact, he might even be twisting the knife a little bit more towards the end of the psalm. After referring to the Exodus and using the metaphor of Israel as a vine, the psalmist now introduces a new character, the man at God's right hand. Now, there's a lot of debate as to who this person might be. It could be poetic language for the entire people Israel. However, the Hebrew of verse 17 can be read a little bit differently than what we had at the beginning. It could be read, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. So this could be Hebrew parallelism, where they're just saying the same thing slightly differently to make a point. That stepwise motion, let your hand be on the man of your right hand and the child of that man. We're taking a step down. However, it could also lead to the language of kingship, which would make the shame that this psalm is throwing on God way more personal. Sure, God, you're forgetting your entire people, but what about that king that you called to your right hand? You're going to forget about your good friend too? And this is especially powerful when we take a little bit of time to remember covenantal theology. So God makes a bunch of covenants, and that's just a legal promise, with a lot of different folks in the Bible. Abraham is one of the first real famous ones. But let's talk about two. There's the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is to just put it really, really simply. If you follow my rules, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Really basic. The Davidic Covenant is that covenant that God made with King David to keep alive the throne and house of David forever. It's one of the most popular covenants in the book of the Psalms. For other covenants, you got to read other books of the Bible to, to see how they come out a little bit more. But when Asaph is bringing up the one at God's right hand, he's reminding God of the covenant, of the promise that he made to David and the kings in his line that follow after him, which is especially powerful after the exile, right? Where the whole kingship of the northern country is messed up. 
They're saying, hey, you made a promise and our entire lineage, our kingly lineage is getting messed up, God. What about that promise? But even if the psalm is mentioning the king or not, it it doesn't really matter too much to make this distinction. Whether or not it's the king or the people, the king would be a stand-in for the entire people anyways. And it's the entire people that are asking God to let God's hand be on the king, if it is the king. So either way, the whole point is that it's this entire nation that's involved in this lament. And they're saying, only when God honors God's part of the deal will they honor their part of the deal, to never turn back from God. So then the psalm ends with the same refrain that they've been singing, but it's getting even more specific than it did. First it was just, O God, and then it was, O God of hosts, but now they use the covenant name for God. Restore us, Lord God of armies. Make your face shine and we will be saved. It's that Lord, the all caps, little print of Lord that you often see in the Bible. And whenever you see that, what they are saying is the covenant name of God, the Tetragrammaton, the the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, right? They're using God's full name, kind of like a mother who's letting her kids know that she means business, right? We mean it, God, don't make us use your middle name, right? They're calling on the specific God of the promise, the God that is right here, the God that has a name that they know. But what happens when we pray this psalm? What changes when this psalm goes from just being words about God to our words to God? You know, I think when we pray Psalm 80, we start by talking to a God that we can look at. We are not talking about an abstract God. We are talking about a God who's a God of ancestors, who's a God of location. Even if you're a convert to faith, by grace, you've been grafted into the lineage of Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. The God you're speaking to isn't even just that familiar God of your forebears. He is that God that has a history with your family, but he's also a God that is physically close to you. You are in the same building. One way to think about this, it might be kind of hard to picture, but the Holy of Holies is a lot like when we have the communion elements underneath the pall on a table. If you've ever been to a church that, that does communion, oftentimes you've got the bread and the wine underneath maybe a white cloth, or maybe it's, maybe it's got some colors on it, but it's a, a cloth that's called a pall, and underneath it is that bread and the wine. But it's that bread and the wine where you're going to meet God in the flesh. And so during the service at church, we spend our times offering prayers and songs and sermons in the presence of this little tiny holy of holies that is on our altar. This holy place where we know we're going to meet God and where God is going to meet us like the priests of ancient Israel. So when we pray, we are praying this psalm to a God that is here, that is nearby, not an abstract God, but a God that we can name, in fact, a God that we can point at. And another thing that happens when we pray Psalm 80 is that we enter into communal lament. Now, you might say, okay, obviously, I mean, this whole psalm is communal lament, but think about what that means. This is a psalm of of an oppressed people crying out to God for restoration. 
you may not be an oppressed person, or even if you are, you know, considered an oppressed person, you might be feeling pretty good. You might not feel the need to lament, the need to call out to God for restoration. The power of the Psalms is that they invite us to pray things we're not feeling, something that we might actually have no real connection with in any way. We take on another's oppression, another's lament, even just for a moment, and we join in this ancient Israelite plea for mercy. And in turn, their plea becomes our plea. And so we are acting as priests, offering a prayer on behalf of someone else. We all pray, and now we're helping to bring about someone else's prayer through this psalm. Now, one more lesson that we can take from this is that we can let God have it. And this is going to come up over and over in the Psalms, but it might be hard if this is sort of your first time thinking about it, but God can handle our prayers. And throughout the Psalms, we are going to use a lot of language to talk to God. Sometimes it might just feel like you need permission just to cuss during prayer because you're just that mad about it. And even though Asaph doesn't cuss in here, he does use a lot of rhetoric to get God to hear his plea. Have you ever thought about heaping shame on God? Maybe you need to. I remember once I heard a sermon from the late Reverend Jim Nestigan. He was a professor at Luther Seminary and just a a very interesting guy. And he had a sermon that always stuck with me because he offered an answer to the problem of evil. He says, if you're suffering, instead of trying to get some kind of philosophical approach to absolve God, to say, okay, God's not actually the reason for your suffering. He says, instead of that, he just says, let God have it. Remind God about the promises that God made and who God is. And it always stuck with me because it felt like how Abraham bargained with God over Sodom and how Asaph here speaks so frankly and holds God to account. Think about verse 17. Let your hand be on the one at your right hand, the one you made strong for yourself. We need to remind God of the promises he made to us in Jesus, the one who sits at God's right hand now, the one who he made strong enough to carry our sins for the world. And I don't think God forgets his son, but when we need to hold God to account, what is more powerful a reminder than that son who himself is the face of God, who himself shines salvation out upon the world? When we pray, we need to let God have it, and we got to use all our tools at our disposal. That might be rhetorically shaming God, but it also means bringing up the one who's at God's right hand, bringing up Jesus and saying, God, remember what you promised to us in your son, your final revelation, Jesus Christ, the word. So Psalm 80 is a great lesson. It's a lesson in holding God's feet to the fire, a lesson in speaking specifically to God, reminding God of the promises and covenants God made and urging God to shine his face again especially as he did for us in Christ. And as we live in a world oppressed by sin, death, and the devil, all terrible things, we need to pray Psalm 80 again and again until we see Christ's face shining on us, in us, and through us on that good and faithful day. How about we close with a prayer? 
Father, for all those who are weighed with the yoke of oppressors, we demand that you bring about your just righteousness. Remember how you freed all of us in Christ and make that freedom count for something. Let your face so shine, Lord Almighty, because only in you can we be restored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Psalmcast. If you want to learn more about us, check us out at our website, psalms.blog, and also find us on patreon.com slash the Psalmcast if you want to support this ministry. We're so glad that you joined us this week, and we hope to see you next time on the Psalmcast. God be with you till we meet again.